wrestling television was defined by wholesome characters and bright neon lights, one promotion forced the industry in a vastly different direction. With an ensemble cast of renegades, rebels, and rejects, ECW rewrote the rules and dragged the wrestling industry kicking and screaming into the 1990s. Two men placed at the vanguard of this great change were Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. Together, they were the public enemy. They not only helped shape ECW's tag team division, but paved the road for the promotion's violent and controversial brand of pro wrestling. The public enemy, the first generation of American children that are more afraid of living than dying. Between 1993 and 1996, the public enemy won the ECW tag team championships on four different occasions. But that almost didn't matter. Their allure didn't come from dramatic title wins or dominant championship reigns. They represented a counterculture, a counterculture no longer willing to remain underground. They were an unapologetic embodiment of the times, characters that looked and felt like the reality outside the arena. There's no fear in these eyes. There's no tolerance in this soul. I'll do whatever I have to do. If I have to slash your throat with a razor next time, you step in that ring. Talking about Flyboy Rocko Rock and Johnny Grunge for public. Don't get in the ring with us. If you get in the ring with us, we will end your career. We may end your being. This is the story of two hoodies from South Central who came to call South Philadelphia home. This is the story of the birth of ECW and one of pro wrestling's most iconic arenas. This is the story of how one tag team helped pave the way for a roster willing to take it to the extreme. Wrestling with Art presents Violent by Design. The 2300 Arena looks remarkably ordinary on the corner of Swanson and Rittner in Philadelphia. Tucked neatly on one of the many narrow side streets that make up the city's South Philadelphia section, the building's painted brick facade gives a vibe more reminiscent of an industrial warehouse than a sporting arena. Standing in the single-lane parking lot in the front of the building, the sound of rail cars can be heard clanging in the distance. The sound of vehicles whisking by on I-95 above is closer. A slight breeze brings with it the unique smells from the banks of the Delaware River less than a mile away. Travel a few blocks in one direction, and the not-so-subtle lure of man's oldest vices await you. Travel a few blocks in the other direction, and you find yourself in the heart of the city's upscale Penn's Landing waterfront district. The rectangular building at 2300 Swanson Street occupies a space all its own right in the middle. As you cross the threshold of the large tinted doors, the building provides immediate relief from the summer heat or winter chill. The constant hum of the HVAC system echoes inside 
as it works overtime to condition the building. The smooth concrete floor and neatly painted walls in the concourse are aesthetically neutral. An area for merchandise tables is strategically placed to catch customers as they first come in. Just a few more steps and you're in the main arena. A long enclosed concession stand is conveniently tucked off to the side. Fans can stand in line to purchase food and drink without missing any of the show. It's not the height of elegance by any means, but it's a long way from a decrepit hole in the wall. Underneath this smooth shell lies the jagged history of the building's past, a time when it was officially known as Viking Hall, and unofficially as the ECW Arena. Taking the short walk from the front entrance to the arena floor, it's almost impossible not to drift back three decades in your mind. Back to a time when a thousand ravenous fans chanted ECW in perfect unison. A time when the deep cracks on the uneven concrete floor became bloody estuaries on a weekly basis. A time when the only relief from the sweltering summer air came from the breeze created by the violent swing of a steel chair. Today, a series of banners swaying from the ceiling serve as a thankful tribute to the many who helped put the ECW arena on the map. Legends like Terry Funk, Tommy Dreamer, Shane Douglas, and Sabu are permanently enshrined as members of the Hardcore Hall of Fame. Then there are banners etched with the names of performers who, like ECW itself, are no longer with us. Two of those banners memorialize Ted Petty, known as Flyboy Rocco Rock, and Mike Durham, known as Johnny Grunge. Petty passed away in 2002, and Durham in 2006. Sadly, neither man lived to see his 50th birthday. In life, Petty was a New Jersey native. He broke into the business in 1978 and was trained by the legendary Afa of the Wild Samoans. Durham, originally from Louisiana and 13 years younger, debuted in 1987 with less of a refined pedigree. They each lived the life of a pro wrestler looking to break into the business. They worked the road, made stops at one independent promotion after another. They even made it to Europe and Asia along the way. In January of 1993, Petty and Durham actually wrestled one another in a dark match on one of the first episodes of Monday Night Raw. Petty, known as the Cheetah Kid, wrestled as a masked high flyer. Durham was Johnny Rotten, a brawling punk rocker. It was a tryout match that left both still searching for that big break once it was over. But eight months after that dark match, the break they both were looking for finally presented itself. A man with a plan connected the two as tag team partners. Not long after that, the duo would play integral roles in helping reshape what the pro wrestling industry looked like, and they'd help transform a simple bingo hall in South Philly into one of pro wrestling's most important venues. Welcome, fans, to another action-packed edition of Eastern Championship Wrestling. My name is Jay Sully. I'll be bringing you all the play-by-play -play action this evening, along with my co-host, the official color analyst for the ECW, Mr. Stevie Wonderful. That's right, Jay Sully, and as always, it is wonderful to be here tonight. We've got a lot of action in store tonight, Stevie, but first, we're going to take a look. Before ECW was reimagined to the extreme, it was simply Eastern Championship Wrestling. Born out of the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance in 1990, ECW became a standalone promotion in 1992. Philadelphia businessman Todd Gordon purchased the promotion and hired veteran wrestler Eddie Gilbert as the booker. In the spring of 1993, ECW secured a time slot on Sports Channel Philadelphia, a burgeoning regional sports network on basic cable. 
Sports Channel was the sister station of Prism, a premium cable channel that operated out of the Philadelphia area that ran movies during the day and local sports broadcasts at night. Prism also aired the WWF's house shows held at the Spectrum. The idea behind Sports Channel was to shift local sports broadcasts from the premium channel to the basic cable affiliate once the television rights to the Phillies, Flyers, and 76ers expired. That is to say, a great number of the Philadelphia media establishment was invested in making the new station a success. When ECW debuted on Sports Channel in April of 1993, the station already reached roughly 600,000 homes. That type of exposure was a godsend for such a small promotion, especially at a time when the WWF and WCW controlled the syndication and cable markets. Viewers tuning into Eastern Championship Wrestling saw a number of familiar faces they once saw on WWF and WCW TV. They saw Terry Funk, Don Morocco, Kevin Sullivan, and Jimmy Snuka. They saw Eddie Gilbert, who also performed as a top heel. They saw Ivan Koloff, Tito Santana, Hawk from the Legion of Doom, and a slew of others. At the same time, they saw performers like J.T. Smith, Johnny Hotbody, Tony Stetson, Tommy Cairo, and the Rockin' Rebel. Those names don't sound quite as familiar. Don't worry, you're not alone. For better or for worse, this hodgepodge of former stars, some less motivated than others, and generic journeymen was what defined ECW. The storylines were basic, the matches ranged from generic to cringeworthy, and the production looked every bit like the shoestring budget that made it all possible. But what the promotion lacked in polish, it made up for an atmosphere. The energy in the ECW arena was an exciting backdrop for the television tapings. The audience at ringside sat in folding chairs scattered in no particular order around the ring. The chairs almost weren't necessary. Fans were on their feet, eager to interact with the performers in their own unique way. Later on, as the crowd slowly increased, accordion bleachers were staged to seat a second level of fans, giving the building more of an arena look and increasing the noise levels. The rowdy crowd was anything but a traditional television wrestling audience. Comprised mostly of adult men, they weren't just happy to be there or absorbed in the moment of a live show. They cheered the performers they deemed worthy of praise and were merciless on the performers charged as unworthy. The fans, many of whom were regulars, had no illusions about the ECW product. There wasn't going to be any epic duels, no technical wrestling clinics. That was accepted. They wanted action. It didn't have to be pretty as long as it was exciting. The crazier a match got, the better. All things considered, ECW enjoyed a favorable position in the starting gate as far as new promotions went. It had a great home base and a TV deal in place. The roster was a work in progress, but constantly evolving. Steps were even taken to rejoin the re-established National Wrestling Alliance, an important partnership for a regional promotion looking to plant viable roots. Then, in September of 1993, Booker Eddie Gilbert left the promotion, opening the door for Paul E. Dangerously to take his place as Booker. Dangerously, who now goes by his real name, Paul Heyman, had recently been fired from WCW and was looking for a place to land. Disenfranchised by the old guard, the 28-year-old native New Yorker wanted to reimagine a wrestling business he felt was in desperate need of a makeover. He wanted to disrupt the status quo, which, as he saw it, was being protected by the unimaginative gatekeepers of wrestling's past. It was the 1990s, 
and the culture of the country was rapidly shifting. But the wrestling business was falling well behind the times from Paul Heyman's point of view. His arrival in South Philadelphia triggered the renegade tone ECW would soon become famous for. He was an in-your-face on-screen personality, and he was an in-your-face promoter. Tapping into the blue-collar intensity of the Northeast, Heyman boldly promoted ECW as a straight alternative to WWF and WCW. Less than a year after taking control, he'd extinguish any partnership with the NWA in the most Paul Heyman way imaginable. The NWA was the past. ECW was the future. Heyman didn't have the money or the influence to actually compete. But armed with valuable TV time and full creative control, that's exactly what he set out to do. Ultra Clash 93 was the first Paul Heyman-inspired ECW show on September 18, 1993. The show's opening match would debut the first in a long line of acts that would come to define ECW's infamous brand. Petty and Durham walked through the curtain not as the Cheetah Kid and Johnny Rotten, but as Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. Joe Styles was too scared to conduct this interview, so guess what? Maddie's in the house, and I'm here with one of the baddest tag teams I've seen in years. The public enemy is fresh. The public enemy is going after the NWA World Tag Team Championship belts, and we want them around our waist. We're not playing. We're not one of these tag teams that are out here just to have fun and get a little notoriety in front of the cameras. We're here to take this belt, and I'm going to take this belt because I'll tell you what, I got a lot at stake. I got everything. I got 10 years wrapped up into this training and starving and living in the hood and that's it for me i'm not gonna be there no more i'm gonna be on top right johnny right you are brother rocco that's right public enemy the top talent in the world are here in the ecw nwa combined promotion i'm talking to headhunters Bring them on! I'm talking Axel and Egan Rodden. Bring them on! I'm talking maybe the Sandman could get him Bring a partner. Him maybe, even maybe, Dad, I don't like the cameraman get him a partner. You get a partner. Anybody's here. Anybody and anything. Get in the ring with us. We'll cut your heads off and hand it back Philadelphia to you. ECW, get ready, because we in the house. Boy, these guys are loud, but we'll see how good they are. Here are a few clips from Saturday night. The public enemy entered a tag team division struggling to sustain creative momentum. A lack of roster depth and team continuity made it difficult to build the division in the promotion's initial year. Rocking Grunge provided Heyman the opportunity to book the division around a single act and build the division from the inside out. But if public enemy were to be established as the cornerstone of the tag division, fan investment in their creative development would be a must from the get-go. The gimmick was the first piece of that puzzle. Inspired by West Coast gang culture and rising crime rates across the country, the public enemy were modeled after a generation labeled by Newsweek as more afraid of living than dying. Characters influenced by urban culture were few and far between around the wrestling industry in 1993. The tag team Men on a Mission debuted on WWF television in the summer of 93. Moe, Mabel, and their rapping frontman Oscar were presented as positive characters rapping and wrestling their way toward making a difference. In WCW, PN News also portrayed a happy-go-lucky babyface who rapped on his way to the ring. 
Neither acts captured the essence of the hip-hop culture penetrating the mainstream in the early 1990s. Public Enemy was the opposite of those neutered acts. They were self-identified thugs who left the hood with a masters from the school of hard knocks. They made no apologies for their suggested transgressions and wore the title of ex-con like a badge of honor. Billed from South Central LA, rocking grunge looked the part of two rough-and-tumble hoodies. They spoke in street slang and made no apologies for cutting corners to get ahead in the world. Winning tag team gold in ECW was their ticket out of the hood for good, and they weren't about to let anyone get in their way. Such a tough act could have easily been received as babyfaces to the ECW crowd. But when they walked into the South Philadelphia arena donning Los Angeles Laker gear, any doubt about their roles were put to rest. The public enemy were heels. A focused presentation incorporated tenets of the hip-hop culture in everything from their gear and ring entrance to their promos. The song Hot Stepper bellowed throughout the ECW arena as rocking grunge strutted and swayed their way to the ring. Grunge would taunt the fans as Rocco Rock did the Cabbage Patch dance with a shit-eating grin on his face. Fans, for their part, serenaded the duo with the chant of Jailbirds, almost from the start. The degrading chant was an important early sign that the act was catching on. The ECW crowd did not engage in that way unless they were invested. For Rock and Grunge to be chastised by the fans so soon after their debut was proof they were on the right track. Promos added another dimension to the characters. Often presented as pseudo-music videos, Public Enemy promos were a combination of comedic spots of the two acting like foolish thugs, clips from past altercations, and angry threats geared toward their next opponents, all to the soundtrack of music from artists like Coolio and Onyx. You couldn't help but be intrigued after a Public Enemy promo. They had charisma and were of the times, but they were also menacing and heelish, all in one 30-second spot. In the ring, the duo was a mixed bag. Rocco Rock was the superior wrestler. The former boxer was a natural athlete and capable of performing impressive moonsaults and other high-risk moves from the top rope. Grunge was decidedly less athletic, but his basic brawling style fit the motif of the team to a T. In-ring wrestling ability was the least important facet of the team anyway. Traditional tag team psychology was put into play few and far between. In its place, Public Enemy used their time in the ring to enhance the violent side of their characters. Between the ropes, they were aggressive brawlers, but that was only the warm-up routine. Rock and Grunge were at home outside the ring. They brawled around ringside. They brawled in the crowd. They even brawled in the eagle's nest an elevated landing where commentary and other production was staged. A public enemy brawl looked much different than the typical pro wrestling brawl of 1993. Rock and Grunge used anything and everything they could get their hands on as weapons. Chairs, canes, pipes, frying pans, even a crutch from a fan at ringside. By the end of the match, there was blood and hardware everywhere. It looked like the aftermath of a full-blown riot. And then there were the tables. 
Long before table spots were commonplace, or even well-placed high spots, public enemy were putting opponents through tables on a regular basis. The crowd may have booed the characters, but they couldn't help but cheer the action public enemy provided. In an early feud against the team of Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond, public enemy's beatdown of the former AWA stars was so brutal it precipitated an angle where the two were actually arrested for assault and battery. They got jelly pads and pants. I'm coming to see you, baby. Come on, fat dog. I don't care. I'm fat. Come on. Let me go. Come on. Go. Poor guy. Smell pig. No. He thought you put me in a cell next to Vince, baby. Hey. Hey. This ain't nothing. At approximately 9.20 p.m. this evening, detectives and uniformed officers from this police department placed under arrest professional wrestlers Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. They were charged with assault based on evidence viewed this evening during the ECW wrestling broadcast where detectives observed this assault take place. The detectives went to the hospital and were advised that professional wrestler Patrick Tanaka of Tampa, Florida, had received three broken ribs and a fractured tibia. An additional charge of aggravated assault was being brought against Flyboy Rocco Rock for the use of a crowbar during the assault. More on that situation later in the hour. Right now, let's go inside. The credibility of the gimmick... Heyman's pitch-perfect presentation and the violent-by-design nature of their matches was the perfect recipe to make the promotion's first compelling tag team in a matter of three short months. And Kevin Sullivan is just firing chairs at Flyboy Rocco Rock. He's got he the hammer. hammer. He's got, it's hammer time. Meanwhile, on the inside, the Tasmaniac trying to turn Johnny Grunge. I can't keep up with this, Shane. The action is just bodies flying every place. The ECW is like an auto accident taking place out on 95. ECW is going to have to start getting three, four, or five referees out here for these type of matches. There's bodies flying every place. Oh, it's no disqualification. All this is legal. And that, that, that kind of match is tailor-made for ECW. It's hardcore wrestling at its best. Oh. Chairs, tables, hammers, bells. You know, we're probably the only promotion that will sanction a title match on a, oh, under these conditions. The emergency room here at Philadelphia General is going to be packed with bodies this afternoon. Oh, the ECW has a running tab at the local uh, emergency room. You can believe that. We just put it on our tab. Johnny Grunge goes over the top. That is legal here in ECW. Look at the debris at ringside, including the body. Tasmaniac and Kevin Sullivan just having their way now with Rocco Rock, and Johnny Grunge is still up. He's still trying to get into the action. Oh, these two honeys have been through it all. They've been, wait a minute, here come the Bruce Brothers. Look out. Here come the Bruce Brothers. Look out. You know, Saturday night, it was the public enemy who stopped the Bruce Brothers from winning the tag team belts. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Rocco Rock just fell on top. Rocco Rock just pinned Kevin Sullivan. You said no DQ, right? No DQ. That means we got new champions. And new ECW champions. Public enemy. The Bruce Brothers came out here to stop the public enemy and inadvertently allowed them to leave the building as the tag team champions. Well, these two hoodies have done exactly what they said they were going to do. They have ascended the top of the ECW tag team scene, and like it or not, Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, the 
Public Enemy are the new Eastern Championship Wrestling Heavyweight Tag Team Champions. I'm here at the back door of the ECW Arena where the Public Enemy literally have taken off out the back door of the ECW Arena with belts in hand. Let's see if we can catch them. Rocco! Johnny! Rocco! Johnny! The public enemy has left the building with belts in hands like a couple of thieves in the night. Let's uh, uh, let's go to the other side of the arena. Hopefully we're Kevin Stone. Winning the tag team titles in March of 1994 was the cap to Public Enemy's well-executed debut. As champions, they transitioned into a feud with Ron and Don Harris, the team known as the Bruise Brothers. The two teams spent little time in the ring and most of the time fighting around ringside and among the fans. The Bruise Brothers were imposing brawlers who towered over most of the competition. But that made no difference to Rock and Grunge. The hoodies were just as mean and even more violent. Not long after winning the titles, Rock and Grunge were incorporated into the main event storyline between ECW champion Shane Douglas and Terry Funk. Public Enemy were hired as mercenaries by Paul E. Dangerously, Douglas's manager, to eliminate Funk from title contention. This would ultimately precipitate a feud with Terry and Dory Funk for the tag team titles. Multiple feuds bleeding into one another would become a staple of ECW's potent storytelling under Paul Heyman's creative direction. His attention to detail and focus on character development blended the promotion's storylines into a succinct, overarching narrative. One episode of ECW television may have only featured a few performers, but multiple stories could still be advanced at once. Inserting Rockin' Grunge in a main event caliber story further elevated their stock. It linked them to Paul E. Dangerously. Paul E. was the creative thread that connected the top heels like Sabu and Shane Douglas. In the spring of 94, few performers got more time on ECW TV than Public Enemy. If they weren't defending the titles, they were featured in important promos or vignettes with Paul E. Here they are! Here they are! Here they are! Here they are. Here they are. Here they are. These are the guys! These are the guys! What's up? Terry Funk! That Weevil Wobble Rubber Bear Man! 
He put his hands on me. <gasps> oh, oh, you, you know, Jolly Green Giant. I know. Terry Funk, you're in a lot of trouble now, boy. Okay. I'm going to tell you something. There's one thing. There's one thing that I only love better than my own mama, and that's money. And Paulie got the money. And Terry Funk, you're in trouble, boy. You're in Tell big him. trouble this time. Diamond. Tell me I went to Tanaka and Diamond when they messed with you. Johnny, oh, you remember Tanaka and Diamond? Pat Tanaka, Paul Diamond. Bad company, remember them? Big tag team champions before and everything. Not so bad company no more. No, Where no. they at right now? And, and how, about, how about Kevin Sullivan and that goofball Tasmaniac? Kevin Sullivan, Tasmaniac? You mean the ones we beat to become E.C. Exactly, baby, from A to Z. And the Bruce Brothers, too. So, Terry Funk, you old, old fossil. Your arms are all busted up, your hips are gone, and your knees are shot. And we're going to make sure you walk to the ring, but you'll never walk back. Terry Funk! Polly Dangerously! I want you, you to want do a favor? I, you want to I don't just want a you favor. I want you to do something so vile to Terry Funk that it'll not only take my man 911, it'll take my father, the lawyer, Tricky Dicky Dangerously, and don't worry about nothing because I want you to do something so vile that they'll put you away for a long, long time and don't worry about the bail money. It didn't take rocking grunge long to fulfill Paul E.'s sinister request. During the much-hyped When Worlds Collide show in May, they attacked Funk mid-match as he and Arn Anderson took on Sabu and Bobby Eaton. Public Enemy hit Funk while he was vulnerable at ringside. Rocco Rock used a chair on his knees while grunge pounded him with a 2 by 4 Funk never knew what hit him. The hoodies scurried away almost as fast as they appeared, but the damage was done. Their attack left Funk unable to contend with the wild Sabu. After the tag champions brutalized Funk's knees, the NWA legend had no choice but to submit to a Boston Crab. Paul E. could barely contain his excitement as he watched the work of his handsomely paid mercenaries play out before him. Funk was left battered, bruised, and betrayed, as his partner that night, Arn Anderson, even turned against him, thanks to Paul E. dangerously. But much to the chagrin of Paul E. and the public enemy, Funk wouldn't be out for long. Well on his way to becoming the hardcore legend he's thought of today, Funk vowed to take bloody revenge on rocking grunge and enlisted the help of the one man he knew he could trust to return fire on the tag team champions, his brother Dory. The first match took place as part of the Hostile City Showdown in June. The Funk brothers leaned on their decorated wrestling skills to ground Public Enemy and keep the action in the ring. Much to the delight of the thousand fans inside the ECW arena that night, the old veterans stretched rocking grunge as if they were breaking a couple of rookies into the business. But this was a Public Enemy match, which meant the action was destined to spill out onto the floor. Halfway through the match, that's exactly what happened. But even when the battle shifted away from the ring, Public Enemy could not sustain any meaningful advantage. Terry Funk let out a visceral war cry as he ate clubbing blows from Johnny Grunge and sent the heavyset street thug flying over the guardrail into the crowd. Dory Funk, the man once thought to be the most talented technical wrestler in all of pro wrestling, stood in the center of the ring with a chair in hand 
and traded shots with both rock and grunge as the action spiraled further and further out of control. It was a scene only possible in ECW. Public enemy back on the attack, but they meet a pair of chairs. Chairs now flying in the ring. And again, what a miscue by the public enemy. Rocco Rock through the chair and it got used on Johnny Grunge. Now it's Rocco Rock on Terry Funk. Dory Funk on Johnny Grunge. Chairs being used. Dueling chairs. Rocco Rock and Dory Funk. Dory gets the best of it. This is hardcore wrestling action. Rocco Rock goes to the shoulder block. Dory Funk shoves him away. The Funks, the public enemy. Grudge match. Hostile City Showdown. Eastern Championship Wrestling. It's not for everyone. As the crazy action continued, Dangerously and his personal bodyguard 911 inserted themselves into the match. 911 took out the referee with a choke slam before Rock and Grunge both jumped on top of Dory Funk as Dangerously counted an invalid three count. Moments later, a bloody Terry Funk returned to the ring and dispatched Rock O'Rock with the help of a wooden platform. Dory Funk then covered Grunge and Terry executed a three count of his own. Of course, neither pinfalls were valid and with no referee to officiate the brawl, the match ended in a no contest. Try as they might, the public enemy and Dangerously could not rid themselves of the Funk Brothers. They certainly couldn't out-wrestle the only brothers to both hold the NWA heavyweight title, and they couldn't out-brawl the fearless veterans either. With no definitive winner declared, a rematch was signed for the following month's show entitled Heat Wave 94. The unlikely feud between two erratic hoodies from South Central and two legit legends of pro wrestling became so popular that the rematch was positioned as the main event of Heatwave. But the rematch would be no ordinary match, even by ECW standards. Inspired by FMW, the Japanese deathmatch promotion, the ring ropes were removed and in their place were three sets of serrated barbed wire. A barbed wire match would settle the score once and for all. You hold that microphone and document this for wrestling history. This is your dividend. Thank you. And this is your dividend. Who is this man, Johnny Grunge? Who is this man, Flyboy Rocco Rock? Who is this man who at the age of 50 enters a sport that has more, that will take more of an athletic toll on a human being than boxing, hockey, baseball, or football? Who is this man that thinks he can stand up to two hoodies? Two men that have been through every hood in America. South Central LA, Harlem, the Bronx, South Philly, Halstead Street in Chicago. Who is this man that refuses to quit professional wrestling? Who is this man that comes out here and thinks these are Tully Blanchard copies? Who is this man that thinks this is some big conglomerate with Jane Fonda making workout videos? Who is this man that thinks this is gonna be some stinking legends match? Who is this man that wants to drag his 55-year-old brother right down into the graveyard with him? Who is this man that refuses to die? Who is this man that refuses to quit the sport that has fed his family? Who is this man that has a death wish that wants to enter the ring with his brother by his side and force the public enemy to commit something so heinous that they're going to go back to where they started, that they're going to go back to three square meals a day? Who in the funk is this man? Who are we? 
more of the Funk Brothers. The violence and hardcore action associated with a public enemy match was about to be ramped up to a level few American fans had ever seen before. Even the normally vocal ECW crowd was somewhat subdued as Public Enemy made their way to the ring. It was a tepid calm before the bloody storm took hold of the ECW arena. In spite of the hardcore environment, the four savvy performers maintained a healthy grip on the important ring psychology that dictates any wrestling match. For over five minutes, the teams took turns avoiding the dangerous barbed wire at all costs. With each sly tease, each failure to lacerate an opponent, the crowd became more consumed with the prospect of violence. Before long, the once nervously passive crowd was chanting, We want blood. Almost on cue, Terry Funk was the first to taste the barbed wire. Rocco Rock pushed Funk's face against the wire, slicing the side of his face and drawing blood the fans so desperately wanted to see. Moments later, Rock backed off to gain a head of steam and leaped toward Funk to push the barbs deep into his face. But when he landed, there was nobody home, and the hated heel went chest first into the sharp edges. Once the dramatic introduction of violence was achieved, the match quickly devolved into something every bit as ugly and violent as the stipulation suggested. As the four competitors took turns becoming entwined in barbed wire, their gear became shredded, their skin torn, and their faces bloodied. As the action progressed, the public enemy found themselves on the wrong end of the barbed wire more than their older opponents. The Funks were delivering a bloody receipt months in the making crowd ate it up each step along the way. With Dory and Rocco Rock rolling in the crowd, Terry Funk stood over a helpless Johnny Grunge and motioned for someone in the crowd to throw him a chair. The fan obliged. Then another did as well. In seconds, dozens of folding chairs were being aimlessly tossed in the ring. Johnny Grunge covered his head with his arms, but it proved little protection for the dangerous situation. As the performers struggled to maintain control of the show, Ring announcer Bob Ortiz sternly warned that the show would be called off if fans didn't stop throwing chairs into the ring. Amidst the scary and chaotic scene, the ECW crowd evolved from a vocal chorus to active participants. The fans inside the ECW arena were not a guiding soundtrack, reacting to baby faces or booing heels. They took on a life of their own, serving as characters within the fiction rather than interested bystanders. Harry Funk, for his part, didn't miss a step. He hoisted Grunge up and delivered a devastating pile driver on top of the chairs that had piled in the ring. Undeterred, Funk jumped from the ring to join his brother in the fight that was going on in the crowd. The Funks chased a desperate Rocco Rock right out of the arena as the brawl continued into the parking lot. It was the grudge match of all grudge matches, as the fans funneled through the exit to follow the action as the three men traded blows in the humid Philadelphia night air. Back in the ring, Grunge struggled to gather himself from the tornado of chairs 
until his bloody partner eventually made it back, with Dory Funk hot on his trail. Dory took an aluminum garbage can to Rocco Rock's head. When the referee attempted to remove the can from Dory's taped hands, the legend didn't think twice before giving the official a shot of his own. It was complete bedlam in the ECW arena, with no end in sight. As Dory continued to hit anything that moved in his vicinity, Grunge slyly removed a pair of wire cutters from the downed referee's pocket. Grunge used the wire cutters to begin removing the barbed wire tied around the ring. The bloodied tag team champions wrapped the wire around a defenseless Terry Funk, using the remnants of the garbage can to hold it in place. With Terry Funk tied in a barbed wire mess, Rocco Rock delivered a shot with a steel chair, fell on top of the legend, and secured a pinfall. Rock and Grunge retained their titles, but the carnage in the ring was far from over. He may have been pinned, but Terry Funk was far from defeated. He hobbled to his feet and began tearing the barbed wire from his head and chest like a maniac struggling to free himself from a straitjacket. The crowd roared at the display of pure guts and even more insanity. Unable to free himself from the tangled web, Funk realized he was a walking weapon. Dory grabbed Rock and threw him headfirst into the jagged mess that was his brother. Then it was Grunge's turn to taste the wire. Incensed with rage, Terry Funk once again encouraged the fans to shower the ring with steel chairs. Unafraid of any consequences, the fans obliged. Soon Rock and Grunge were buried by a second round of chairs tossed into the ring. enemy may have won the match, but the Funk Brothers won the war, and ECW truly crossed the threshold into the extreme. Philadelphia, don't be played for fools! There's only one wrestling promotion that is truly raw! There's only one wrestling promotion that's hotter than a stick of TNT Nitro. There's only one wrestling promotion that is the rudest, the lunatic, the crudest, the most insane, the most severe, the hottest form of sports entertainment legal in the United States today. There's only one wrestling promotion that truly takes it to the extreme. And there's only one wrestling promotion that is Philadelphia. Hometown wrestling promotion, ECW, Philadelphia's homemade, hometown, home team, ECW, Philadelphia's wrestling promotion. By 1995, Paul Heyman had successfully rebranded ECW as Extreme Championship Wrestling. His growing fan base fully embraced the hardcore style that separated the promotion from the WWF and WCW product. What began as a simple startup on a depleted independent circuit had transformed into a hot promotion in just two years' time. 
ECW earned a reputation for breaking all the rules and daring to go places creatively that other promotions either couldn't or wouldn't. Heyman was able to parlay ECW's cult following into an expanded footprint both in terms of live shows and on television. In addition to Sports Channel Philadelphia, the show received TV time on the MSG Network in New York, UPN in Chicago, KJLA in Los Angeles, and other local networks everywhere from Pittsburgh and Orlando to Boston and Cleveland. Episodes of TV were occasionally taped from different locations, but the home base remained the ECW Arena in South Philly. The intensity of that atmosphere was just as much a part of what made ECW's product popular as the action in the ring. In the midst of the promotion's surge in popularity, the once weak tag team division was reimagined into a creative mix of characters and gimmicks. There was Cactus Jack and Mikey Whipwreck, a hardcore outlaw and his docile sidekick who could take a hell of a beating and keep on ticking. There was the Pitbulls, two crazed muscleheads in patent leather known simply as Pitbull 1 and Pitbull 2. The Tasmaniac and Sabu forged an alliance under the guidance of Paul E. Dangerously based on pure spectacle, while Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit were a team of up-and-coming technical wizards who brought a hard-edged catch-as-catch-can style to the table. The public enemy was front and center of the ever-evolving division as they continued to refine their heel gimmick over multiple title reigns. Expensive clothes, fancy sunglasses, and fresh dreadlocks rounded out a new look for the perennial champs. With every promo and vignette, the compelling team further developed their characters into staples of the promotion's weekly TV offering. Christmas this year, Christmas was good to us. Oh, yeah, Rocco, and I see that's a nice new leather coat you got. Where'd you get that at, Rocco? I didn't give you no coat for Christmas. Well, I see you got one, too, because I walked into the store, and they said, try them on, and the store gave it to me. Oh, well, that's the same purse that gave me mine, too. Thank you, Storm. Oh, Johnny, have you heard the big news? Yeah. What's the, up, Rocco? The ECW going to be making figurines of all the wrestlers. Just so happens, Johnny, I got the first one off the press. I got me a Taz doll. Rocco, that can't be Taz. Yeah. Oh, Rocco, he ain't fat enough, and he's definitely way better looking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what. Come this Saturday night, Johnny. Saturday night, this Saturday night. ECW Arena, the house, the, the Mad Daddy's of Violence built. Philadelphia, you bring down no Sapu, Tasmaniac, and your giant 911. Because, baby, they facing yours truly, P.E., Sabu, Taz, 911. You going down one more time. Dangerously, stick your nose in my business one more time, sucker. And you know what? Tell him, Rocco. Engine, engine, number nine on the New York Transit line. If the train falls off the track, it must be your mama smoking crack. Yes, yes, y'all. Yes, yes, y'all. Yes, 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 y'all. Well, I wake up in the morning and I drink our coffee. We like our butter roll butter softly. Our apartment is nice and lofty. All you little suckers just back up off me. Back up off me. Back up off me. B-A-C-K-U-B off me. In February of 95, 
Rockin' Grunge lost the titles to Sabu and the Tasmaniac following a controversial finish to a tables match at a show aptly named Double Tables. With pinfalls and submissions thrown out, the titles could only be won when both members of an opposing team were put through tables. When Johnny Grunge and Tasmaniac sent each other crashing through a table from the second rope, the match was put into a sudden death type situation. Rocco Rock hit the somersault front flip from the top rope. He called the drive-by to retain the titles for his team. But Paul Lee managed to divert the referee's attention, causing the winning act to be missed. This opened the door for Sabu to recover and deliver a leg drop over the top rope and down onto Rocco Rock, who went through a table set up outside the ring. The one-time mercenaries on Paul Lee's payroll found themselves on the wrong end of the backstabbing yuppie from Scarsdale. Three weeks later, Dean Malenko, known as the Shooter, and Chris Benoit, known as the Crippler, attacked Public Enemy and jumped the line for a shot at the new champions. Rock and Grunge once enjoyed an alliance with Malenko and Benoit, but just like their falling out with Paul E, Tag Team Gold proved to supersede all past allegiances. On February 25th, in spite of Paul E's best efforts, Malenko and Benoit took the titles from Sabu and Taz. Public Enemy didn't wait long to establish themselves as the new number one contenders. Malenko and Benoit didn't even have the chance to leave the ring with their newly won titles before the former champs hit the ring and set off a wild brawl. Unwilling to simply step aside, Sabu and the Tasmaniac injected themselves into the fray as well. A three-way feud over the tag titles progressed through the spring, and as it did, the relationship between Public Enemy and the fans began to shift. The fans fell in love with the action associated with a Public Enemy match almost from the get-go. By 1995, they'd fallen in love with the characters as well. It was inevitable. The hard-knock nature of the gimmick combined with the charismatic personalities and hardcore matches was the perfect recipe for a popular babyface act in ECW. The three-way feud over the tag titles dominated TV leading into the April 8th event titled Three-Way Dance. There, all three teams would compete in an elimination-style match to settle the score once and for all. Once again, Public Enemy found themselves in the middle of a feud worthy of the main event treatment. Nearly 1,200 fans packed into the ECW arena to witness the culmination of a compelling feud. It was the most attended show under Paul Heyman's direction, short of when worlds collide in 1994, which enjoyed the drawing power of WCW contracted talent. Unfortunately, the creative headwinds generated during the Build to Three-Way Dance quickly dissipated moments after the show started. As fans were still settling in for the night of action, they learned that Sabu was a no-show. As it turned out, Sabu was just as unpredictable behind the curtain as he was in the ring. Rather than seeing the compelling feud to its finish, Sabu chose instead to hop on a plane headed for Japan to work for New Japan Pro Wrestling. No creative angle would adequately account for Sabu's absence, and so Heyman didn't even try. Instead, he was up front with the fans and offered refunds to anyone that wanted one. At the same time, Heyman lambasted Sabu for leaving the fans and his co-workers high and dry before publicly firing him on the spot. If nothing else, the moment allowed Heyman to further galvanize his fan base. It was truly ECW against the world. You were either with them or against them. And anyone willing to turn his back on the brand was the enemy, fan favorite or not. And so, as the old saying goes, it was on with the show. Rick Steiner was named as the Tasmaniac's replacement partner. This at least kept the structure of the three-way elimination match intact. But the last-minute switch considerably changed the dynamic of the match. 
Steiner and the Tasmaniac were eliminated in relative short order, essentially turning the blow-off to the story into a straight tag team match between the current champions, Malenko and Benoit, and the former champions, Public Enemy. The four performers did their best to not let the story of the feud go to waste. Rocco Rock and Chris Benoit battled deep into the crowd, exchanging stiff blows as they pushed through the animated fans cheering the action. As the brawl made its way across the arena, Rock scaled the eagle's nest and attempted a drive-by on Benoit, who was laid out on a table below. But the crippler rolled out of the way at the last second, and Rock crashed through the table and onto the unforgiving concrete floor beneath. The crash and burn sent the fans into a frenzy. Back in the ring, Johnny Grunge was having better luck against Dean Malenko. After being busted open earlier in the match, Grunge's face was a bloody mess. The infamous Crimson Mask notwithstanding, Grunge had plenty of fight left in him as he attempted to choke the life out of the shooter with the help of a bull rope. Blood began to pool on the ring canvas as Grunge bent forward and hoisted Malenko on his back. The thick bull rope wrapped tightly around Malenko's throat. The match was a dramatic clash of styles. It was the violent, brawling nature of Public Enemy's offense against the stiff wrestling style of the champions. In spite of the pronounced contrast, and the altered dynamic because of Sabu. It all came together to create a compelling fight for the titles. As the match reached its dramatic peak, a Fuck Sabu chant echoed throughout the ECW arena. It was a vocal display of support from the loyal fans as the fight raged on. With both teams feeling the effects of the battle, the action returned to the ring. That's when Malenko and Benoit introduced a table into the mix. The champions had no issues lowering themselves to the level of their hoodie opponents to preserve their titles. Benoit executed a superplex that sent Rocco Rock crashing through a table for the second time in the match. Johnny Grunge could barely stand as his partner was rolled out of the ring and the champions honed in for the kill. Grunge was a beaten down bloody mess, but he would not give up the fight. As the champions attempted a double suplex, Grunge reversed it into a double DDT. Just then, Rocco Rock sprung back to life as if shot from a cannon up to the top turnbuckle. This time, the drive-by connected on a prone Dean Malenko. And here comes Rocco Rock! Rocco Rock going up top! This could be the drive-by! He hits! He covers! One, two, three! We've got new champions! We've got new champions! Grunge surviving the onslaught of all four of those men 
Congratulations to Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunt. Unlike Public Enemy's previous title wins, it was a full-blown celebration inside the ECW arena this time around. The team once jeered and mocked with the chant of Jailbirds was now fully embraced by the fans. They were still violent by design, still unabashed street thugs willing to break the rules. Only now, they were doing it with the full support of the ECW faithful behind them. They were just bad enough to be good. As the summer air rolled into South Philadelphia, rocking grunge were riding high. A year earlier, the hostile ECW fans buried them under a sea of folding chairs. Now, it was the fans themselves entering the ring to join their favorite tag team for post-match celebrations. Rockin' Grunge would be swallowed up by dozens of fans who squeezed into the ring at once to hoist the team up on their shoulders and dance the night away. One night, the dancing and swaying of all the fans proved more than the ring could take. But even after the ring collapsed, the music never stopped, and the impromptu house party carried on. Life was good for the public enemy. A little too good. One night, on their way home after another successful title defense, the champs recognized an ominous warning spray-painted on the wall outside the arena. The letters TPE, followed by TOS. Rocco! Johnny, don't give me no hard time. Just get in there and drive. Rocco! What, Johnny? You'll be tagging on us, G. Oh, Johnny. I don't feel so good. Rocco. I know TPE. We the public enemy. Explain what's going on, G. Johnny, I don't like this, but... What's wrong? TOS. Terminate on site. Looks like we're not the only two hoodies in town no more. The mystery of who wanted public enemy terminated on site would be revealed during the June show called barbed wire hoodies and choke slams. Rockin' Gruns were scheduled to defend their titles against Axel Rotten and a partner of his choosing. But rather than fight with his partner, Rotten chose instead to fight against him. This left nothing for the public enemy to do but hit the music and start dancing in the ring. But the party would end almost as quickly as it began. Grunge. 
public enemy is in dire straits. Rock and grunge have been bloody. We've got to get some help in here. Somebody's got to come put a stop to this. They can't do this. They don't even work here. Can we get some help? The gangsters have invaded the ECW arena. The gangsters, New Jack and Mustafa, left the public enemy laying square in the center of the ring like no team had ever done before. They were a team very much in line with Public Enemy's gimmick, only much meaner and even more violent. Like Rock and Grunge, New Jack and Mustafa debuted as Wild Street Thugs from South Central LA in Jim Cornette's Smoky Mountain Wrestling promotion in the Tennessee Valley. But New Jack wasn't just playing a character from the streets. He was from the streets. His character was an extension of the real-life existence that came from growing up in poverty. New Jack didn't blur the line between reality and fiction. He erased it altogether. He wasn't a wrestler. He was a fighter. When he came down the aisle for a match, he wasn't there to tell a story. He was there to kick ass and hurt someone. He let the violence tell the story for him. Mustafa, on the other hand, was a trained wrestler. At six foot five, he was the imposing heavy for the tornado of violence that was his partner. Aside from being physically intimidating, the Mustafa character came across as somewhat insane as well. With eyes wide open and the rest of his face hidden beneath the cover of a do-rag, Mustafa never said much of anything at all. A wild laugh and penetrating stare was all it took to get his message across. He was not someone you wanted to see looking back at you across the ring. The gangsters broke into the business's heels, but in the heart of the Smoky Mountains, a team of African-American street thugs invited a racial component to the team's heat that made for a serious situation. New Jack and Mustafa didn't shy away from that heat. On the contrary, they fully embraced it. In 1994, New Jack began to incorporate O.J. Simpson-related material into his promos, among other things that few other performers would have the courage to do. But the gangsters were different. They were the ones capable of hurting just about anyone. They were the ones to be feared, not the backwoods wrestling fans in Kentucky or Tennessee. That was the simple reality of the matter. The gangsters were tailor-made for ECW. Their attack of public enemy was the first chapter in a gang war angle inspired by the real gang wars consuming the streets on the West Coast. After months of enjoying the role of the dancing babyface champs, Rock and Grunge were forced to return to their roots if they were to survive the war against New Jack and Mustafa. Us. You want to take it to the hood? Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge have come home and we're back in the hood. It might be fancy clothes. It might be a pocket full of money now. But you're bringing out the true public enemy. Gangsters, we know where we got to be. ECW's making big strides. ECW's moving up, Johnny. <laughs> Well, we don't need no fancy hotels. We don't need no penthouses. We don't need no luxury cars, because we had that, right, Johnny? They all. This is where we belong. 
Mr. Cameraman, get a shot at our resort. Mr. Cameraman, let the people see where we belong. Because where we belong is here. And here is where the blood flows free. And here is where our hearts belong. And here is where we need to be, Johnny. This is where we need to be to get back to where we belong. Gangsters, remember one thing. Public Enemy are the original OGs of professional wrestling. So one thing left the same. Rock up by baby. Public Enemy won the first official match of the gang war in July at Hardcore Heaven, but the rivalry was just getting started. The gangsters weren't interested in win-loss records. They didn't care about title belts or who pinned who. They were driven by one thing, violence. Kill or be killed. Nothing else mattered. <laughs> Public Enemy, first, you telling people you from the hood, you from South Central LA, the lyrical gangsters. When son, talk and jump don't get you over with the gangsters, you see. You the low G, we the big G's. We invented violence, you understand? Violence to you might be dropping somebody on their head through a table. What violence to me and Mustafa is taking you by your arm and chaining you to the bumper of my car and then chaining you to the bumper of his cop and then we drive in opposite directions that's violence you ain't seen the first of it you want to be the tag team champions we cost you the belts now we tagged you again coming out the <laughs> and son you in. you in for a long ride you in for a bumpy ride you see the gangsters ain't to be played with we've been fined and we've been banned in more organizations and federations than you can imagine you what see up, here huh? for two reasons to get paid and to beat the hell out of you. You perpetrating, boy. You ain't no original gangster. You original pranksters. You understand? I've been living in South Central all my life, and not one time have I seen that Puerto Rican or not one time have I seen that walking down the street of Crenshaw, you understand, of South Central. You want a little bit? Bring it on. Tonight, we beat the daylights out of you, and look what happened. If you was done with us, we'd have been left in the ring, and we we was done with you, we'd have been left in the ring. But son, we got up and we came at you again. Luckily enough, you might have got the pin, but the battle has just begun. We gonna <laughs> drop it on you, boy. We gonna bring you violence. ECW, you ain't ready for me and Mustafa. Public Enemy, you ain't ready for me and Mustafa. I'm gonna let you know on the secret, son. We gonna put something on you, and you ain't never had nothing like this. This ain't like nobody else. You see, the <laughs> we don't really know too much about wrestling, but we know a whole hell of a lot about fighting because we've been slanging and banging since the age of 12. So P.E., which I would call you now, public enema, get ready because we going to kick your ass all over ECW, punks. <laughs> the team's bloody encounters were regularly highlighted on episodes of TV and were a feature of most every ECW monthly show from July through the end of the year. Cage matches, stretcher matches and everything in between provided the fans with a never-ending dose of violent chaos. Some nights, Public Enemy were victorious. Other nights, it was the gangsters. No matter who came out on top, the action simply reset and started all over again the following week. 
By the fall, the rivalry had penetrated much of ECW's roster, with baby faces and heels aligning themselves with respective sides of the gang war. The Sandman, who was the ECW champion, aligned himself with the gangsters, while others like Tommy Dreamer and Mikey Whipwreck sided with Public Enemy. The pro wrestling version of the Bloods and the Crips turned the ECW arena into a gangland battlefield. New Jack would run down the aisle with a shopping cart full of weapons quickly deployed to inflict harm. Johnny Grunge would set up tables as his partner turned himself into a human weapon of mass destruction, taking out anyone in his path. The fans shouted and cheered with each act of violence as rap songs bellowed from the house PA system, adding an exciting and almost cinematic element to the experience. On December 29th, the atmosphere inside the Lost Battalion Hall in Queens was hardly motivated by holiday cheer. Just four days after Christmas, the two teams were back at it again at an event called Holiday Hell. On that night, a well-placed chair shot to Rocco Rock's skull helped the gangsters end 1995 on a winning note. For the third time in as many years, Public Enemy was the centerpiece of a high-profile feud that helped define the underground spirit of ECW. Rock and Grunge were a part of the promotion's lifeblood. The team was a perfect representation of what ECW was all about. The new year brought with it new opportunities. ECW's brand was growing as fast as its reputation could take it. The promotion was beginning to drive change in the industry. Elements of ECW's hardcore action was slowly starting to penetrate the mainstream product. When Diesel sent Bret Hart crashing through the Spanish announcer's ringside table during a championship match at Survivor Series 95, it was a spot right out of the public enemy playbook. ECW may have been small in stature, but Heyman and his roster of fearless renegades successfully disrupted the status quo. The WWF and WCW had no choice but to take notice and adapt accordingly. ECW could not be contained underground any longer, but that success proved to be a double-edged sword. Five days into 1996, Public Enemy entered the ECW arena ready to perform their last match for the promotion. The team snagged a deal with WCW. Next stop, Monday Nitro, and the burgeoning Monday Night Wars that would soon dominate the wrestling business. Public Enemy wasn't the only act to get plucked from Swanson and Rittner. Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, and Eddie Guerrero were already signed by WCW before Rock and Grunge said their goodbyes. Later that year, Two Cold Scorpio and Cactus Jack would be under contract with Vince as Flash Funk and Mankind, respectively. It was the cruelest of ironies. ECW facilitated a much-needed shift in creative tone and in-ring performance. But in doing so, the promotion was left vulnerable to poachers with bigger wallets and the promise of primetime cable TV. Losing valuable talent like Public Enemy was a setback, but not the end of the world. The fans were too loyal, Heyman too creative, others on the roster too hungry to let it all slip away. ECW would continue to battle and continue to grow. By 1997, the promotion would be on pay-per-view, an important milestone almost impossible to think of back in 1993. It was only fitting that Public Enemy ended their run in ECW right where they started, inside the coarse confines of the ECW arena. The show, designed as a tribute to the team's body of work, was aptly named House Party. The fans hated to see the beloved hoodies go, but had nothing but love for the hardcore journey that forced the likes of Eric Bischoff to take notice in the first place. 
like so much of his creative genius, Paul Heyman bucked tradition in booking the sad departure of his famed tag team. Rockin' Grunge wouldn't go out looking up at the lights and doing the honors for the next team. Instead, the team went out as winners, defeating the gangsters to end the gang war that dominated the promotion for nearly six months. The fans needed that happy ending more than the gangsters needed the win. With debris from the hellish match scattered around ringside and a mix of blood and sweat dripping from his face, Rocco Rock grabbed the mic to address the audience one final time. Just the energy you people create makes us guys do things we normally wouldn't do. Ain't no fucking way I'm gonna dive off no fucking ledge 12 feet high through two tables unless you make me do it. Fans chanted thank you as the emotional send-off concluded with one final house party. One fan waved a sign that said, Long live Public Enemy. Another sign read, Please don't go. Public Enemy's run in ECW was one for the ages. From disjointed matches with no-name journeymen to hardcore brawls with legends of the NWA. From fans chanting jailbirds and bombarding the ring with dangerous steel chairs, to tearing down the ring with insane house parties. From their debut in a sorry bingo hall in South Philly to their goodbye as kings of an underground castle. The story of ECW's rise is the story of the public enemy's rise. It's difficult to imagine one without the other. Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge may have reached the big time when they arrived at WCW, but the team never achieved anything close to the creative magic they found under the direction of Paul Heyman and among the loyal fans inside the ECW arena. The less than stellar run outside of ECW often overshadows the team's remarkable contributions. There is no single hero in the story of ECW's meteoric rise, no single match, no one angle. But the 28 months that Public Enemy dominated the promotion's creative was invaluable, and it should never be forgotten. Today, when wrestling fans enter the 2300 arena and look up towards the heavens, the banners memorializing Ted Petty and Mike Durham allow the memory of public enemy to live forever. My name is Barry Hess, and this has been Wrestling With Art. Thank you for listening, and support our show by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash wrestlingwithart. And follow me on Twitter, at BFS171. Leave the show a rating and review, and let us know your thoughts on this episode and others. 